the Mets, meet the Mets. Step right up and greet the Mets. Bring your kiddies, bring your wife. Guaranteed to have the time of your life because the Mets are really sucking the ball. I don't know about you, I like these songs. They're corny. They're campy. We know it. I don't know if that was what they were made to be or if that was the time, but I like them. They need to bring those back. Meet the Mets. Well, we're going to talk Mets baseball. Maybe not for everybody. If you're a Phillies fan or you're a Yankee fan, you might, you know, I don't know. You might want to skip this one. Check Your Brain Podcast. Tony Mazur here. Thanks for checking the show out today. Today we're going to talk a little bit about Tom Seaver and the New York Mets and happened to lose Tom Seaver in 2020 back on August 31st. It was really sad. Uh, one of the great stars of, well, not just baseball and the Mets and, and not just a great pitcher, but a star in the sports world. He was really w- well-respected and uh, really lost him to uh, dementia, which was kind of aided by COVID-19 from that uh, and uh, I got a chance to talk to Bill Madden, who has a new book about Tom Seaver and his conversations and his friendship over the last 35, 40 years with uh, Tom Terrific. So uh, we're going to talk about that. But because I was only able to have Bill for a little bit, I said, well, I'm not just going to do a half-hour podcast. I want to extend it a little bit. So my friend Russ Cohen, Sportsology, you can find him. He has a couple of books out there, Baseball's Best Rookies, Pioneers of Baseball, and a book about the Mets called Numbers Don't Lie, talking about some of the great uh, Mets players and teams in uh, back in the day. So I talked to him a little more about Tom Seaver as well. So it's a Tom Seaver and a Mets podcast, so get ready for that. Again, if you're not a Mets fan, you know, I don't know what to tell you. You might want to skip this one. If you are a Mets fan, you might enjoy this. So check it out. This is Bill Madden. And then uh, about a half hour into it, I talked to Russ Cohen. So hope you enjoy this. Obviously, one of the tragic things that's happened out of 2020 has been the COVID-19 pandemic. And especially in the sports world, there have been a few athletes we've lost this year, especially due to COVID. I know one of them was uh, Tom Dempsey, the club-footed kicker. But I-, I think one of the big ones that came out this year was Tom Seaver. And Tom Seaver passed away on August 31st here in 2020. And uh, what, what was unfortunate for Bill Madden, who is uh, joining me, who is my guest here, he was putting together this this book. It's called Tom Seaver, A Terrific Life, talking about Tom Terrific. And uh, unfortunately, he passed away this year where I think uh, the, one of the quotes, uh, whether it was in the book or somebody else said it, uh, that he couldn't write his own memoir. So this is probably the closest thing you can get. And uh, so uh, Bill Madden's joining me here uh, to talk about Tom Seaver. And uh, first of all, Bill, uh, thanks for being on and talk about your relationship, your friendship over the years and the long time that uh, Tom Seaver had been playing with the New York Mets. And uh, just talk about your relationship with him and the kind of what got you into writing this book uh, about him. Yeah, well, this is a very personal book uh, for me uh, because of my relationship with him. Uh, It kind of all started after his uh, career with the Mets because uh, during his heyday with the Mets in the late 60s, early 70s, I was with the Daily News, but I was covering the Yankees. So I didn't spend too much time around the Mets. But then uh, when the Mets reacquired him uh, and in 1983, they lost him again by leaving him unprotected for something called the free agent compensation draft. It was a draft that baseball had set up in order to reward or compensate teams that had lost premium free agents. Uh, And um, every team in baseball could protect 15 players on their roster in their entire organization. 
and the rest of their players would go into this pool. And the White Sox had the first choice in that pool that year. And I got tipped off by somebody in the commissioner's office that the Mets had left Seaver off their protected list, which was obviously a huge story at the time. And I called Frank Cashin, the general manager of the Mets, to get a confirmation on it, which he did very reluctantly, I might add. So now I'm sitting on this story, which turned out to be about the biggest story I ever broke for the Daily News. But I felt I had an obligation to Seaver, even though I didn't know him that well. I mean, he knew me, but I felt I had an obligation to let him know what was coming in the next day in the paper. You could never do that today in the age of Twitter and no. expect to have an exclusive. But in those days, this is before social media, and you could. You could sit on a story. So anyway, I called him at home because I felt, you know, this is a traumatic event in this man's life because he'd already left the mess once under very bad circumstances, and now he's going to have to leave again under circumstances completely out of his control. So anyway, to make a long story short, he was very appreciative of the fact that I took the time to call him and took the uh, and he was very appreciative over the fact that, um, you know, he, he knew I could have just sat on the story and blindsided him. And I think for that reason, he looked at me from that point on as somebody other than just another reporter. And uh, ironically, three years later, after the White Sox took him and he, and he reported to them and he won his 300th game in New York uh, in 1985, now in 86 his contract was running out and he called me again and this time he asked me if he said he was homesick he wanted to get back to new york he wasn't going anywhere in chicago and neither were the white Sox. and he asked me if i could call steinbrenner and see if he could arrange a trade to get him to the yankees and uh, apparently cashin had tried to trade him to the mets but davy johnson mets were on their way to a world championship that year and they were full of pitchers, uh, Darling and Gooden and Fernandez and Ojeda. So Davey Johnson didn't want another pitcher on his staff. And so Paul Carrollson, the general manager of the White Sox, wanted to know if I could call Steinbrenner and get the dialogue going there. And Seaver asked me to do the same thing. Wow. At the time, I told Seaver, I said, this is a, this is a, should be a no-brainer for George. This is right out of his playbook. Here the Mets are taking over the town, and he's got a chance to upstage them by bringing Tom Seaver back to New York again, as a Yankee, no less. But when I called Steinbrenner, I was surprised that he was kind of lukewarm to the idea. And bottom line is the deal never materialized because George was insisting on some uh, not giving up some top shortstop prospect uh, who wound up never playing shortstop in the major leagues. <laughs> And so Harrelson turned around and traded Seaver to Boston. So, so then we flash. We, oh, uh, no, no, no. Go so, ahead. So we flash forward all these years later. And uh, we maintained this great relationship through the years. And especially when Seaver decided to go into the wine business and build his own vineyard out in California, I was into wine myself. And so we had a lot of conversations about this. And I encouraged him to, you know, to launched this project and I spent, he invited me out there a couple of times to show me what, how the progress and what was going on there with the vineyard. And of course, every time I went out there, I had to prepare myself to get a tutorial on wine <laughs> from him. But, um, so 
about the year 2015, a man named Martin Dunn, who had been the, uh, he had been the editor-in-chief of the Daily News for a lot of the time that I was there, had started his own production company. And he came, called me and he said, look, I would love to do a documentary on Seaver and your relationship with him. Do you think he'd be amenable to this idea? So I told him, I said, look, I'll call him. We'll see what happens. But I knew at the time, Seaver's memory, he was starting to have memory issues. This is all the offshoot of Lyme disease, which he first contracted 30 years earlier when he was living in Greenwich and pitching for the Mets. It had come back 30 years later, only he didn't realize it and he didn't do anything to, to uh, medicate it or whatever. And as a result of waiting so long, uh, the doctors told him that he, the memory issues he was having were going to get worse uh. as the years went on. So I was aware of this when I called him about doing this documentary. Well, he agreed to do it, and we flew out there and with a whole crew and everything in 2016, and then we went back again in 2017. We're going to I'm talking about Calistoga and his vineyard. Anyway, the difference between him in 2016 and 2017 was dramatic. Oh. And I was, I was really alarmed at it because he couldn't remember anything about his career in 2017 that he was pretty good on the year before. And so anyway, we did the documentary. We had just so much time with, spent with him on camera and everything else. And of course, I, I interviewed all his teammates, all, all the famers that he was uh, really close with and countless other people for this documentary. And then uh in in march of 2020 is when the uh the mets put out a statement or the actually the hall of fame put out a statement that said he was suffering from dementia and he was dropping out of public life so now this was a serious situation because um you know i was really saddened by this and this is when martin dunn said to me again he says no billy you really need to do the book now and I had always been reluctant to do the book because of his memory issues. And I knew I couldn't do an autobiography and I would have had to get his permission to do a regular biography. And it would have involved a lot of issues that I didn't really want to get into. But now he, you know, now he's in his, this state of dementia. So I, I decided to go ahead and do the book. And of course, fortunately, I had so much stuff from the interviews and everything from the doc that never made it into the documentary. So. And that's how the book came about. That's a, Tom Seaver, A Terrific Life is the name of the book by Bill Madden. 300, 311 wins, 286 ERA, 3,640 strikeouts, 12-time All-Star, three Cy Young Awards, a Rookie of the Year, a no-hitter. He led the league in wins in ERA three times, and it was a five-time strikeout leader. And what's, what's interesting about that relationship about reporter and player and you see this a lot with like younger players where when they first join the league, they're, you know, maybe full of piss and vinegar and they want to talk a little bit more. And then as their star starts shining a little bit, the interviews either go, you know, two or three word answers, yes and no answers, and that's about it. And then sometimes some players actually get humbled over time. I remember in Cleveland back in the day when Kenny Lofton, was the was playing with them the first time around. So when they went to the 95 World Series and they were competitive in the mid-90s, he gets traded to Atlanta and then he comes back and he's almost like a different player, but not just on the field, but off the field. 
at first, Kenny was kind of a a little little standoffish with the media, didn't really want to talk. And then afterward, it was almost like he bought into realizing, wait a second, this is a PR job. I'm kind of a salesman. So I wanted to ask you about dealing with not just Tom Seaver, but players in that time, whether it was the Yankees or the Mets or any other kind of locker room or clubhouse, that relationship over time, that's something that, you know, you have you have players that don't really want to talk to you. They don't want to talk to the media. They don't want to do any of that. And then others are like, okay, no, I'll give you a scoop. And they, like some players just get it. Because if you're a reporter, you love having that access and being able to break those kind of stories. And some players understand that angle almost from a, really a sales aspect. Yeah, well, um, that's true. Uh, of course, I had a unique experience in that I covered the Yankees in the 70s and early 80s. The, uh, the, hi- the highlight, of the high point, I should say, of the Bronx Zoo years <laughs> when everybody on the team was mad at Steinbrenner for any given, on any given day. And you'd walk into that Yankee clubhouse and uh, they'd all be sitting in front of their lockers. And as, as I once told somebody, I said, they all want to tell us things. Uh, that team was unique. Uh, I mean, you'd walk in there and there'd be Greg Nettles and there'd be Goose Gossage and uh, they'd welcome you over to your locker. Reggie Jackson would stick his foot out when you go by his locker to make sure you didn't go, <laughs> make sure you didn't get away from him. <laughs> Reggie always wanted to get his name in the paper. But, um, uh, but then uh, in Seaver's case, though, it was a little different. Uh, again, I wasn't with the Mets uh, I was with the Yankees, but all the Met writers, which I talked to for the book, talked me talk, talk to me about how he did change. When he first came up in 1967, he was kind of this brash rookie. Uh, he won the Cy Young Award that year. But he made a point to uh, well, the writers and also to some of his teammates that he didn't like the atmosphere in that clubhouse and the, and the basic overall demeanor of the uh of the writing and everything else because of the fact that Casey Stengel still had such an influence on that team from the uh, the lovable losing Mets of the early 60s and the writers uh kept quoting Casey in all their stories because the team still was bad the new manager was West Westrom he was a very bland guy that didn't have much to say and so Seaver saw this and he read this and he at one point, he got really upset about it, and he said, look, I don't like all this lovable losers talk around this clubhouse. He says, they talk, they call them the amazings when he's talking about how amazingly bad they were. He says, I'm not going to be part of this. I had nothing to do with that. And he said, I'm, I, I have never been a loser in my life, and I didn't come here to start losing here either. And so I just want to know that this stuff, this talk has got to stop around here. And little by little, it did. And of course, two years later, Seaver led them to the World Series. But what happened was, where he was always very approachable his first few years with the Mets, after the 69 season with all the hullabaloo uh, that was a tribute to the team and the miracle Mets and and Seaver himself as the leader of that team, uh, he changed dramatically. This is what the writers told me. They said he was no... Uh, he said, "When you, they told me when you when you got him, he was fine, but he was no longer the guy sitting in front of his locker doing the New York Times crossword puzzle and kibitzing with the writers about world events and everything else. He just wasn't around because he got tired of it, and he got he got uh, it was not so much overwhelmed 
but he just felt there was it was just got to be too much and he was on the fans approaching him on the street all the time and wanting to talk to him and and so he he retreated and uh it never really he never really was the same guy that he had been in 67 68 and 69 that's and getting back to those days and with you covering the Yankees and then doing this stuff with the Mets this is how big of an impact Tom Seaver had is that the Mets were you know you had the amazing Mets but he was the first star of that team I mean yeah Willie Mays ended up rejoining the New York area eventually and you had a you had a young Nolan Ryan you had Jerry Kuzman you had a lot of those uh, young players but that was a Yankee town that's a Yankee town, and the impact that Tom Seaver kind of swung things a little bit uh, in the '70s, and actually made the help make the Mets and put them on the map. Because again, just like kind of like how in in Los Angeles you have it's Dodger blue, and even though the Dodgers joined the league, what or or joined went out west about three years before the Angels did, even all across Angels country, quote unquote, it's Dodger blue. So. Tom Seaver, this is how impactful his career was, is that he really turned things around in a Yankee town. I mean, you had three other teams at that time, too, and it's just that's how good of a player that he was able to be and great of a pitcher and uh, somebody for the community and somebody to really root for uh, and kind of really change things around in the uh, New York baseball market. There's no question. I mean, the Mets, the Mets image, as I was saying before, the Mets image – uh, before Seaver got there was that these lovable losers. And you know, it was actually an image that was working for them as far as attendance wise and every, everything else. They, they kind of, the Yankees were so corporate, even though they were winning every year, it kind of, I guess maybe New York kind of got almost, almost bored with the Yankees winning. And then it come, comes across Casey Stengel comes back with the Mets and these lovable losers. But the fact of the matter was, Tom Seaver was called the franchise for a reason, because he was the franchise. As Frank Cashin said when uh, he brought him back the second time to New York, he said, you know, he says, you talk about the Yankees, it's always Babe Ruth, it's Lou Gehrig, it's Tony Lazeri, and you talk about all these other teams, there's always two or three stars on those teams. He says, this is with the Mets, there was only one, and it was Tom Seaver. Yeah, and he, I, one of the lasting images with Tom Seaver was I always remember him trotting out to the mound at Shea Stadium when they retired his number 41 jersey, where, you know, he, he wanted to do it one last time and being able to take a bow. And it was just, it was a fantastic sight to see. He was inducted in the Hall of Fame in 1992. Uh, but I always thought it was interesting getting back kind of with the Yankees, too, was that, and you had mentioned earlier, that 300th win came at Yankee Stadium. And I've talked to, I have a friend of mine who uh, covered the Mets for a long time. He said that was the only time a lot of Mets fans had ever been to Yankee Stadium was to see Tom Seaver in a one of those goofy softball uniform White Sox jerseys <laughs> winning his 300th game at Yankee Stadium. So even though he wasn't, he, he was, basically he was still a New York hero there. Yes, he was absolutely, and um, uh, it was a remarkable day. I covered that game, and uh, writing the chapters, the first chapter in the book, I felt like I was writing about a heavyweight fight because of the fact that Seaver was fighting his fatigue, he was fighting the, he was fighting the whole, the whole atmosphere of the stadium, and uh, before the game, it, it, he didn't find this out until the Friday before the. Uh, the the White Sox came into town on Friday, 
and they, his game was going to be on Sunday. He didn't find out until Friday that Sunday had been designated Phil Rizzuto Day by the Yankees, and they were honoring the scooter, retiring his number. And so Seaver was – he knew that this was going to be just yet another distraction as far as his mission at hand, which is to win his 300th game. And Tony LaRusso told me for the book, Tony said he was – his manager said he was really – really worried for him because he said, you know, it's all this stuff with Rizzuto and New York and 300 wins. And, and he says, I, I, I was really worried that we weren't going to play well that day and it wouldn't be Tom's fault, but it was so unfair to him to have all these other things going on when he's just trying to win a ball game. And of course, then the game began and um, he was one thing he's Seaver told me about that 300th win that was more, that he was most proud of. And that was that it was a complete game. He was determined to pitch a complete game that day. He didn't want to get his 300th win with help of two or three relievers or whatever. But there was a couple of times during the game where he was struggling. He, he was either in a little bit of a jam or he was just struggling with his control or whatever. And uh, Dave Duncan had taken over as the manager because LaRusso was fired, uh, fired. LaRusso was thrown out of the game early on the, early in the game and Duncan, the pitching coach took over and twice Duncan came out to the mound to talk to him. The second time he came out, uh, Carlton Fisk, Seaver's catcher and fellow hall of famer went with him to the mound and Fisk starts yelling at Duncan. You're, you're not seriously going to take him out of this game. Are you? <laughs> and Duncan says, no, 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 no. I just want to know how he feels. And Seaver's says, I'm, I'm okay, Duncan. And Fisk starts getting in Seaver's face. And he says to him, he says, you don't even think about coming out of this game. You're not coming. I will not let you come out of this game. This is your game. This is your day. You're staying in here. And Sears says, no, I'm okay. I'm okay. And, of course, he finished the game. And this is the most remarkable stat of all. I mean, when, I, when I give you this stat, people listening to this broadcast will say, this, is, this, is not, this could not have happened. He threw 143 pitches in that game. Oh, my goodness. 39 years, 39 years old. <laughs> Yeah, and that was the era where you there were a lot of 300-game winners, uh, comparatively speaking, in that decade. So it was Seaver. Uh, I don't think Carlton finished his game, but I know Necro did. Gaylord Perry and Don Sutton all did that in the 1990s uh, and, and finished and had that complete game for their 300th win. And, and then eventually, you said about Phil Rizzuto, he ends up joining Phil Rizzuto in the booth with the Yankees as a broadcaster after his career. Talk a little bit about his his uh, second career in being broadcasting, whether it was for the network or for the Yankees. Well, that was another irony. Uh, you know, the Mets got rid of Seaver twice. And um, I will say this, and I talk about it a lot towards the end of the book. He never really reconciled with the Mets, even though he was brought back twice. And uh, obviously he went into the hall of fame as a Met. Uh, but one of the ironies of all of that was in, when he was elected to the Hall of Fame in 1992, he was working for the Yankees as a broadcaster and with Rizzuto. And uh, that whole summer, he celebrated going into the Hall of Fame in the Yankee broadcast booth. <laughs> and then, of course, um, through the years, uh, he, he eventually the Mets did bring him back to be a broadcaster for them a few years later. But it was never the same. And he just never had a really good feeling about the Mets. Somebody asked me the other day whether he would like Steve Cohen. I said he would love Steve Cohen because Steve Cohen 
is nothing like uh, Steve Cohen really appreciates Mets history. And that was what Seaver's biggest gripe with the Mets was. He said, unlike the Yankees who cherish their history, who celebrate their history, the Mets kind of run away from their history. And the deciding, the deciding factor for him as far as ever trying to get uh, reconciled with the Mets was when he was invited back for the opening of the city field and a friend of his accompanied him on the trip and he told me this told me this story for the book they walk into the rotunda at city field for the first time Seaver looks around and he sees this big huge number 42 for jackie robinson all these brooklyn dodger things all over the place uh the place is uh painted in uh dodger blue and uh and Seaver's looking at all of this and he says to his friend he says, you know, Jackie Robinson was a great player. He was, a, he was a legend of the game. He changed the game. He says, but I don't recall him ever playing for the Mets. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, that ret- the Ebbets Field rotunda there over at City Field. It, um, it, it really is interesting. It's, it's fascinating. He re- really was one of the great players in the game. And uh, Bill, before I let you go, I know we're pressed for time here, but with um, you've also done biographies on Don Zimmer, Lou Pinella. You did uh, a, a great book on Steinbrenner, and kind of you know hand in hand with the with what was happening and when they brought Seaver back in '83, and then he he plays for the Red Sox in '86, though he wasn't able to participate in the World Series. I know he got a big ovation. That shift in the 80s where the Mets kind of took over, where Steinbrenner's approval on everything and his micromanaging and the amount of times hiring and firing Billy Martin and all the other managers that they had in that time, that the Mets really took over. You had Strawberry, you had Gooden, you had Ray Knight, you had uh, Wally Backman and uh, Lenny Dykstra and all these other players. And it really wasn't until... They banned Steinbrenner from the game that the Yankees really seemed to try to put things together and, and and get a team together, which is how they got Jeter, Posada, Revere, and all that. But, boy, that Steinbrenner stamp of approval in the 80s really went against them. And, you know, falling for guys like Ken Phelps and uh, Kevin Moss and Jesse Barfield. Talk about how in the 80s kind of New York became Mets town until right around, what, about 1995 when Showalter took over. And Tory. Yeah, well, there was a, you know, there was a transfer of ownership. The Mets finally got out of the, the, uh, the uh, deroulet era when uh, Joan Payson, the owner of the Mets, died, and the team passed to her daughter, who knew nothing about baseball, and it was just that really dark period, especially when they traded Seaver uh, to the to the Reds in 1977, and. Uh, from that point on until the early 80s, the Mets were so bad. And But then, as you said, uh, the Mets in 1980 were sold to, to uh, Nelson Doubleday and Fred Wilpon, and that's when things started. They brought in Frank Cashin as the general manager, and after a couple of years, they started to really get good, moving up to the 86 season, of course. And at the same time, Steinbrenner was going crazy over the Bronx and doing all these crazy things. And... Uh, uh, I, I say, fortunately for George, uh, he wasn't really all there at the end uh, to truly appreciate the great championship teams that he had, that the Yankees had in the late 90s. But um, the fact of the matter was, his legacy was preserved uh, 
by the fact that uh, Gene Michael was allowed to run the team without any in interference from George and was able to put together that great team. Uh, I, I tell people a lot, when I did the George book, uh, I said the Steinbrenner book was a labor of labor, whereas the Seaver book was a labor of love because I had a relationship with Seaver and there was so many, there's, there's a lot of things in the Seaver book that readers are gonna be surprised to know. There was a lot of parts of his personality, which I get into in the book, uh, things about him that uh, even I was surprised to find out. His relationship with his close friends from Fresno, his lifelong friends from Fresno. Whereas the Steinbrenner book, I must have interviewed over a hundred people for the Steinbrenner book, most of whom I didn't know. Uh, but I knew I had to talk to them to find out more about George's life before he became uh, the Yankee owner and things like that. Whereas the Seaver book, most of the people I interviewed in, in, for the Seaver book, I had relationships with them as well. I knew all of them and um, it was a lot easier to do. Yeah, it really is just it. It was nice to get that labor of love and to reading a little bit of the book, which the book is called uh, Tom Seaver, A Terrific Life by Bill Madden. Uh, I'm sure it's available, what, on, uh, you know, Amazon.com, everything, all those places? Amazon, BarnesandNoble.com, uh, Costco, and all your favorite bookstores across the country. And, and Bill Madden, formerly of the New York Daily News, J.G. Taylor Spink Award uh, at the Baseball Hall of Fame. So, it's uh, Bill, it's an honor to talk to you today, and uh, good luck with the book, especially right around the holidays and everything. And, uh, you know, I, I, I'd love to talk to you some other time when uh, we have a little more time to talk baseball, especially New York baseball. Uh, it's just fantastic. Bill, thanks so much for joining me. Okay, my pleasure. Take care now. Oh, the butcher and the baker and the people on the streets, where do they go? To meet the Mets! Oh, they're hollering and cheering and they're jumping in their seats. Where do they go? To meet the Mets! All the fans are true to the orange and blue. So hurry up and come on down. Cause we got ourselves a ball club, the Mets of New York Town. So yeah, I, I interviewed uh, Bill Madden yesterday about Tom Seaver, and <clears throat> that's the reason I wanted to get you on, was uh, talking about uh, the about Tom Seaver and the impact he really had on somebody in Mets culture is, I mean, yeah. he really was the first superstar in Mets history, and when you look at yeah. the, the David Wrights and the, you know, the, uh, the Daryl Strawberries, the now Pete Alonso, but Tom Seaver, after all these years, still tops that list. Oh, yeah, it's not even close. Yeah, that's uh. We're, uh by the way, we're starting. So, <laughs> okay. So, so what? So what? Uh, like, uh, what? What about Tom Seaver? What would you say he, he would be right at? Kind of at the. You'd say he's at the top, and is there anyone even close to where he's at? There's really nobody close in in Mets lore. I mean, Gooden could have gotten close. I also think New York Mets fans, because when um when the Mets won in '69 they largely looked at that team as a pitching team and they had just enough hitting to sort of squeak by, you know, great fielding, some luck. And so I think ever since then, like I was born in 63, right? So we were really into it at that point. They, um, they rolled in televisions in, in our classrooms at school so we could watch the world series because they were on during the daytime. So this all had a big effect on, on young kids like, like me. And, so pitching sort of became ingrained like as the Mets way. And if you think about it, like if you talk to Mets fans, they'll talk about pitching first 
before they talk about the hitters. And so Seaver was the first guy and, and, but he really, even as a rookie, right. As in 67, he really set the ground rules of what he was looking for in a team, because at that point, the Mets stunk, you know, you were coming off the Casey Mets and you're rolling into just more losing seasons. They get Seaver and now all of a sudden this young guy's in the locker room and one day he sees players sort of like laughing, not really, you know, being all that solemn after a loss. And he tells him it's unacceptable, you know, not exactly in those worlds, but he basically <laughs> talks to all of them and says, listen, I'm not, I'm not here for this. I'm here to win. And that was a, a big discussion that may have turned the corner for the New York Mets, because now they had a guy that was going to all of a sudden lead them. He wins rookie of the year. I'll, I'll plug a book, a cheap plug. Uh, I have a book, Baseball's Best Rookies, and he's in there. And and that rookie season is not the best rookie season that you'll ever see from a pitcher numbers-wise, but on the bad team he was with, he was amazing. His war was great. What did he win, 16 games? Yeah, tested my memory there. And on that team to win 16 games was a lot. Like, it, it really was. So he really set the tone for them to become eventual winners. And you're talking about an era that was the it was the era of the pitcher. And for somebody yes. to come onto the scene and make that kind of impact, and as I was talking with Bill Madden yesterday, uh, you talk about the Mets really have always been that, you know, the bastard, redheaded stepchild of, of New York baseball because you think about it, yeah, you had the Dodgers and you had the Giants that left just a few years earlier, but for at that point probably – what would you say about 50 years before even the Mets joined, maybe 45 years? It's Yankee country. Because when you think about uh, Los Angeles yeah. is Dodger blue, even though the Dodgers joined the league and started up uh, and, and moved out west in 1958 and the Angels joined in 61. But if you go out there, very few places have Angel you know, they're, they're not wearing the red. It's not, okay, they remember O2. They like Mike Trout. Right. They remember a couple of the guys. But it's Dodger Blue out there. And it was such an uphill battle, it seemed, at the, from the Stengel years and the early days playing at the polo grounds to getting to the point of winning that Miracle World Series in 1969. And eventually by the 80s and Steinbrenner's stranglehold on what was happening, it really took – 20 something years outside of that one year in 60 and then also going to the world series in the early 70s but the mets yeah, really right. just kind of had that uphill battle and it took guys like siever to really take over that town yeah i mean again like my mom was a brooklyn dodgers fan so she actually got to see jackie robinson play my grandfather took her out there to see it and when the dodgers did move those were the people that became met fans the, the Giants fans, most of them seem to turn into Yankee fans. So I don't know why, and I don't know if it's all of them, but the Dodger ones, maybe because it was Brooklyn proper that they really had no identity. So they, they picked up on the Mets, and that's why my family picked up on the Mets. I mean, my dad was still a, a Yankee fan, but that's okay. He, he knew we were all Met fans, and so – yeah, Seaver was the identifiable guy. Like, even when I was in Little League, I pitched first, right? And I, you know, would watch Tom Seaver, and I would try and pitch like Tom Seaver. Of course, I didn't make I didn't make good on that, but I was good for a couple of years, and everybody wanted to do that. 
Like I had a Tom Seaver, you know, Spalding glove. I've got one of probably one of the better Tom Seaver baseball card collections. Like it's just, you know, crazy. I have Seaver stuff on my desk here. It's like, even though he did recently pass away right now, it's unfortunate. It's sort of like the Jets and Joe Namath, but right now he's the guy that most look to. And then, then you're right. Then, then Goodman strawberry. And I, and I think, you know, then they, they do go David Wright. I don't know if Alonzo will be the guy that captures this, this generation. I happen to think it's going to be DeGrom. I think DeGrom's that guy. Cause again, Pitching. another pitcher, they signed him to a long term. He won a consecutive Cy Young's. So then there's that sort of reminder about Seaver. Like that's the thing that happens with the Jets. Every time the Jets get a quarterback, inevitably you start getting compared to Joe Namath if you have any success. And the same thing was met with the Mets pitcher. If you have any success, you start getting compared to Tom Seaver. It's just a natural thing. It happens on television. So that's like that's the line, right? That's the the mark you have to pass of greatness in in, in that organization. Yeah, that, they haven't had much greatness. Yeah, it's a Ken O'Brien. Ken O'Brien, yeah. uh, yo, he's yeah, he's good, but he's no Namath. Well, yeah, okay, no one is. Right. I mean, Richard Todd had it worse because he went to Alabama. Like that really, <laughs> really put a heavy load on him. At least Ken O'Brien uh, did have some great years. I mean, again, he got sacked way too many times. Yeah. But you know, in the end, yeah, he didn't. And where he was picked too over Marino and some of the other guys. But yeah. uh, by the way, did you ever have any interactions with Tom Seaver at all? I know you were. I did. You because uh, we were, I think, DMing or tweeting one time about you being at the, uh, the Yankee Stadium in uh, 1985 when he won the 300th game, and it seemed like. Yeah. That was the only time a lot of Mets fans had ever gone to Yankee Stadium, and I think, um, I believe it was Jack Brickhouse said something like, uh, long gone from the Mets, but a New York hero nonetheless, and uh, won his 300th game while playing with the White Sox. Right, so I'll I'll tell you about that one first. So, yeah, I knew it was getting close to him being able to win 300 games, and so I started to map it out. And I went and I called Ticketron and I got tickets at Yankee Stadium. I ended up having pretty good seats around the bullpen area. Um, so I go in, I'm wearing a Mets hat. I don't know if I was wearing a Mets jersey. Who knows? Maybe I was, maybe I wasn't. And I was getting razzed by the fans. The fans were like, oh, he's going to lose. He's too old. He sucks. So the day starts off and it's Phil Rizzuto day. Like a lot of people forget, it was Phil Rizzuto day and they brought a cow onto the field because of the holy cow thing, right? That's yeah. dick. And the cow knocked over Rizzuto. It charged him just a little bit. And there's a video of it. It's hilarious. <laughs> I remember and, that. Yeah. And Phil's okay, you know. But I was there for everything else. So, like, because I was loaded to the bullpen, uh, Seaver had this routine where he would run, right? A lot of pitchers don't run like they used to. They run a little bit. But Seaver had this whole running routine, and that maybe was what gave him the power in his legs and the leg drive and all that. So he had this running routine where he would do it around the um, – around the stadium, you know, around the whole inside of the stadium, the interior. And then at some point he would just stop and talk to the fans. And I was kind of close to that. And, you know, he was just, you know, that's how he would stay loose, I guess. And then he goes, pitches in the game. Now you will think I'm crazy for this, but I am a little bit of a crazy person. But weeks before that day, I actually organized like a softball game and I do it every week. I was doing it every week. Right. And it was a pretty big one. And so I left in the seventh inning 
And the buddy I was with totally got it. I think he actually played in the softball game. But some people are like, how could you leave? You, you, you didn't see him, you know, get that final out on the field. And I'm like, but I listened to it and I knew he was going to get it. I wouldn't have left if I felt like he wasn't going to get it. But I knew by like the fifth or sixth inning, he was going to get it. And so I lived up to my commitment. And I know people like think that's crazy, but that's just the way it is. But it was an exciting day. And, but yeah, as a Met fan, I got razzed in Yankee Stadium. It wasn't my first time there though. My cousin did take me in the seventies. This is kind of funny. I won a contest at Carvel. You know how like you go, you drop your name, Mm -hmm. they do like a weekly drawing. And I won tickets for a Yankee game at the old Yankee Stadium. This was like 72. Oh, so this was before they renovated in the mid-70s when the Yankees had to play over at Shea. Yeah. Yeah, that was like 75 when they shared the same field. And, and they, you know, the funny thing about that is they had that SSPC card set where they literally shot every baseball card at Shea Stadium because every team in baseball went through there. So... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's kind of like an oddity in uh, in the baseball card thing. But getting back to the game, so the I went and saw the great A's team. Like that was it was like maybe it was seventy four, it was something like that. But it was one of their World Series years, and so that was my first time at Yankee Stadium. Was for that when I had won this contest. So it was my second time. So I just want to point that out because yeah, you're right. Probably a lot of Met fans hadn't been there, but at least <laughs> I was there once before. Give them a yell. Give them a hand. Come down to 